everyone to Soundtrack Showdown, the monthly podcast where two soundtracks in film, TV, games and other medium are pitted against each other. Yes, I am your usual Sonic host, Ella Kova, and with me, as usual, is my co-host and orchestral and classically trained expert, Tristian Kane. So this is a, actually our first episode since we've started, whereby the two chosen films are actually going to be more female-centric. So I'm really excited. I hope you are just as excited as I am to be talking about them. And I guess what's more interesting is unlike other previous episodes where there was a similar theme or like a similar aesthetic or whether it's the same story or same character mm. but told in a different interpretation, um, these two are particularly really different from each other in terms of like genre, style and subject topic. So the first one is Le Marge de l'Empereur. For those playing along at home, that is the... French title for the film that you might better known as The March of the Penguins. That's right, which is the 2005 documentary which won a few um, awards, Oscar-winning Oscar awards. Yeah. Oscar award. And we should point out that actually it was a French film first Initially, yeah. and it was then redubbed and redone into the American version. But we are going to be focusing on the French version. So the composer... Why are we talking about the French version? Why? Well, because obviously the French version, the composer is a female composer. Well, it was definitely a good start. <laughs> by the name of Emily Simone and she is an electronic pop artist. The other film that we're going to be talking about. Just before we get there, just because you don't speak French, do you? No. Ella? What I know basic French. You know basic French, but so what brought you to watch a film if, so you, presumably you came to the film because of Emile? Emily, sorry. Yeah, I mean, because I listened to the song, to the album first before I even watched the film. Right. And so... Had you seen the English version of the film at that point or was this genuinely just listened to the album, thought it was cool and then wanted to watch the movie it came Exactly. From? I think just because the album really um, inspired me and it was something completely different I've never really heard before, especially in terms of the way, the feeling of the polar setting mm -hmm. and sort of the wintry feel and just I remember listening to it particularly when I was always like particularly when it was raining and when there was snow it just it really encapsulated that imagery you know perfectly and I don't think many it, the concept of winter and anything to do with ice mm -hmm. you know she captured it very well this was during when I was at university, and when I first discovered Emily, I found her to be quite, as I said before, inspiring as a female composer and a producer. Mm. So she was really, because, you know, one of her biographies that I read is that she really spent a long time learning the production techniques to have a finesse into what she's doing, and it really shows. And so many times when I've played her music to, like, 
I guess my male friends, they're all like, oh, wow, yeah, the production is really amazing. Like mm. you can really hear all the tiny sort of like details in the tracks. And I think that's, it's not, I don't want to say that it's unusual, but you don't get to hear female composers and producers be recognized for it as much. Definitely, definitely. So this is why I just wanted to kind of like bring a little bit more awareness mm. and introduce her because she is quite more on the quiet side. You don't hear much about her unless obviously you're living in France. Yeah, you're certainly in the English speaking world. I don't know mm. how, how well she's in. I'd, I'd not heard of her before. I'll. I'll I'll cop to that. Yeah. But so th this is the rare sort of case of a, a film, just kind of getting back to the original beginnings of the conversation, this is a rare case of a film where you watched it because of the music, presumably. Yeah. Not the other way around. You didn't no. get into the music after watching the film and loving the film. It was very much, yeah, you'd heard the album and you decided I must hear the movie this comes from. Exactly. Wow. That's really cool. So. And the second film is 2013's Under the Skin by Mikai Levi. The composer, yes. of course. <laughs> and, uh, what the, the director, Jonathan, Jonathan Glazer. Jonathan Glazer, yeah. I had not seen either of these films before we started. I had seen the American version of uh, March of the Penguins, more or less, when it came out. I, I had heard about Under the Skin, what, yeah, 2013, 2014, somewhere around there it came out. So not that long ago. And I'd heard bits about how it was it still took me by surprise just how bleak and cold that film is wow mm. it is it is something else and the music doesn't particularly help if anything it kind of heightens it even more so oh, sort yeah. of the bleakness and the sort of mm -hmm. i guess i wouldn't say macabre but like this i is would a, <laughs> <laughs> i would go there there's a lot of nihilism to it as well so yes. it's really um but I enjoyed it when I saw it in the cinema. I really like. I, I was in the cinema where there was only about maybe five other people, and a few people walked out because obviously they probably just didn't get it. But for me, yeah. I just kind of went with the journey, and so I'm really excited about talking about them because obviously it's they're both by female composers, and absolutely. one one film is a documentary, really. Well, think of absolutely. It. And then the other one is a cinematic film about so. penguins. No, just kidding. No. <laughs> <laughs> about alien penguins. Yeah. <laughs> In this episode, we have five rounds where we're going to be discussing the following. Round one, opening scenes. Round two, danger. Round three, intimacy and raw emotion. Round four, production and techniques. Finally, round five, legacy. Watching these two films and then beginning to sort of think about how we might talk about them. Obviously, to start off with, you like, yeah, we're watching a sci-fi thriller slash horror movie and a documentary about penguins. These are going to be very hard to compare. And so you go into it with, okay, that's going to be interesting. And then you watch them and then you're like, oh, but they, there are similar things in here because they're both all about isolation and about a certain foreign otherness. And they're both quite dark at times. You think, oh, yeah, maybe something's... No, no, they're completely different. <laughs> and particularly the way that they musically treat those different moments is completely different the rounds this month are shall we say we've had to be quite creative in order to get our rounds to, to to match with each other would you agree with that yeah they're not your usual sort of themes um motifs or character or environment they're a little bit more specific into sort of emotional vibes essentially is how we've we've had to go yeah. with it. because yeah we couldn't just be like oh this is the theme for the the main character because 
But they're both very emotional scores, but in different ways, though, don't exactly, they? Exactly, which is why we've emphasised the emotions, I think, in terms... Because they do definitely have some emotional commonality. And it's quite interesting functional. to be able to look at how different styles of music have kind of... Because one is very electronic, so based. Yes. And how it can try to emulate an emotion whereas the other one is more orchestral based and but well with a lot of processing and what emotions that kind of encompasses but just to be able for the audience to kind of see what is possible yeah you know with using both electronic or orchestral sort of techniques so yeah these are two pretty extraordinary scores so i i hope you're going to enjoy them but before we get into them if you've been listening to any podcasts lately you'll have heard this sort of housekeeping that has to be done if you're listening and you haven't subscribed before, maybe you should subscribe. Share it with your friends. Write us a review on iTunes. Thank you to listener Robbie Dingo, who recently wrote us a, a review on iTunes. That was very Thank nice of you. Thank you very much, Robbie. And hopefully you'll be joined with a, by a few more friends soon. So yeah, definitely share us with your friends. Reach out to us on the socials. What are the socials? Uh, so we've got obviously Facebook, Instagram, our own website, mm-hmm. Twitter. Yep. Go onto our website and then there's all the links there. Okay, so reach out to us on www.tristellarmusic.com. That is T-R-I-S-T-E-L-L-A-R music.com. Right, so let's move on to our round one. Opening scenes and introduction to characters. In this round, we're going to begin with our creative comparisons between the two. And we're talking about essentially how the music introduces the characters and to a lesser extent, the worlds in each of the two films. So we're going to start off with Under the Skin with a piece called Creation. And this is the piece of music you hear right in the opening kind of sequence. Would you you call it? Opening titles, opening sequence? Yeah, correct. Interesting scene. It is an interesting scene. If not, it actually reminds me a lot of um, 2001 Space yeah. Odyssey, beginning, like right at the beginning of the film. Here's what it sounds like. So yeah, I think it, it sounds very similar. It has a similar vibe. Obviously, if you added Scarlett Johansson's vocals on top, you know, it would be in somewhat quite mm. similar thing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I guess the creation track is meant to um, signify the coming of the aliens, of course. So Yeah, it's an interesting scene in that it's one of those ones where when you first see it, when you watch the movie for the first time, and maybe I was it was a bit weird for me because it was a bit out of time so i hadn't read the reviews going in or whatever but essentially but you shouldn't be reading the reviews before watching no, the film well, anyway I read the previews or whatever so i didn't necessarily remember what was meant to be but that's that's the best way to so, go so and watch a watch a film where you have absolutely no pre that's what pre- i think but it did mean that for those first five minutes i had no idea what it was showing me because it, it gives you very little information it's, it's essentially just geometric shapes 
mm-hmm. bits and pieces until you actually see the people start to do things the the bike rider and the bodies and scully hands and king dress that opening sequence which is all incredibly abstract in the most literal sense of the word mm. you've got no idea what on earth that's meant to be it's only it was only really maybe half an hour to 45 minutes later that i could kind of mentally reinterpret oh that was the birth of the alien of course that's what it was mm-hmm. at the beginning it's just what okay <laughs> this is abstract title sequence so yeah it was one of those interesting things it's not obvious as to what's going on you've got to kind of enjoy the film out of sequence a little bit mm. for me when i first saw it i kind of got the idea that okay this is meant to be the creation because obviously of how the forms of the eyes meant to be coming through and then mm. Scarlett Johansson's voice coming through where she's initially just doing the, is it the loss of the A's and B's and just Oh, yeah, phonetics. so like learning to speak, yes. Yeah, and then but then gradually going from A's to then actually saying the actual variety of words and accents and stuff. Mm. So um, I kind of got the idea, oh, okay, so this is somebody who is getting ready to getting ready for some sort of a, a mission in some sense. Mm, okay. But that's just the way I... I, I you saw could, it. I saw it, yeah. So I wasn't necessarily... Well, you were right, so we'll go with that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was just confused. Yeah, so I thought the music was... I thought it was interesting and I enjoyed it. I think it was a nice sort of introduction, nice base for the sort of the alien world as well. Because mm. um, I think... that sort of furious sort of energy and otherworldly otherworldly buzzing yeah definitely it's sort of to to, this is probably the only time in this entire podcast that i get to sort of fall back on my classical training it has a very uh what we would sort of say uh, a sound a lot like christopher penderecki who we played in an earlier episode or even arnold alfred either way his surname is schnitka Mm -hmm. he's a a russian Mm. um jewish composer who wrote a lot of sort of violin music that has that sort of furious energy the effect of it, it's it is it's really off-putting. It's, I would say, uncomfortable. Yeah, for me, it just sounded very dishevelled, almost very. I like that. Yeah. Yeah, dishevelled is a, is a, yeah, it's a really good way of doing it because it's dusty. Yeah, I mean, it sounds very dishevelled, and as you say, dusty and kind of almost like all over the place, but mm-hmm. underneath, like under the floorboards, or yes. there's some life going on underneath trying to come through. But like there's the opening scene that's almost like the cells are like forming together, like mm-hmm. coming to the center to then, you know, make a hole and to form the actual being. Uh, I thought I'd be able to go back and find lots of similar horror movie examples where we you, you'd find a track that sounds a lot like this, because essentially once you start to use that technique, there's not a lot of variation you can have. It's kind of going to sound like that. But I couldn't, actually. You can That technique is used, that scratchy kind of really random, all over the place kind of technique is used a lot. But it's usually just as a sort of a subtexture to screeching strings or some other really ominous sound that's going on. This idea of a really quite extended period of time, it feels like what, three or four minutes mm. of just that sound is... That, that is very, genuinely unusual. And it's very unsettling, for yeah. sure. Right, so then moving on to a completely different yes. sort of opening scene, <laughs> which is a little bit more on the pop side, a little bit more quaint, shall I say? Yeah, quaint's good. Quaint's good. And whimsical. Uh, that is All Is White by Emily Simone. white I think it's now 
Started off scratchy, so it was almost like, but no, no, it was completely different. It completely went into the whole sort of positive, like innocent, gentle, sweet, warm. Mm-hmm. Well, not warm, but I mean, like, no. <laughs> <laughs> opposite of warm, opposite of warm, but it still has that sort of like, you got to remember the Ferrello, like, ice and cold feels like home, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> It was quite. It was quite sweet and intimate, isn't it? It and is gentle, which is very. Um, that little whispery baby kind of voice. It's, it is very intimate. So. Yeah, and she has that signature French sort of female um, tone that's quite whimsical and very identifiable as French and like what mm-hmm. a lot of French composed like singers, yeah. female singers actually do. They have that sort of whispery, sort of gentle, sweet. It's quite sexy. Yes. As well. Yes, definitely, and I think probably a. a most people at home will also associate very much with a Bjork mm. sort of sound because it's definitely oh, what she was tapping as well. Yeah, but Bjork, she belts her vocals though. I think Emily Simone, she never really belts okay. it out. She's quite timid. Like even when I've seen her perform, I actually got the chance to see her perform. Oh, wow. She's very, very timid, mm. um, very quite shy and very French in that yeah. sense. You know, quite reserved in that sense, but still quite alluring yeah um well, that, that's how they get you in yeah exactly <laughs> whereas bjork uh, i think bjork she's a, out there she's out there but not so she's a little bit more kind of crazy and a little bit un untrained i guess a bit raw raw yeah for this particular song it's unusual to have a typical pop track as an intro to mm. a documentary, which, you know, you're usually quite used to having an orchestral-type sweeping... Dramatic, the, epic. For me, when you're comparing Emily Simone's and the, the American one, which, funnily enough, the French one was actually replaced by the American composer Alex Warman's mm. um, for the English version because the producers feared that Emily Simone's soundtrack would be far too challenging for the North American viewers. Yeah, it's interesting that they decided that it would be too challenging that they would be like as open to hearing something new or different or unusual yeah and particularly given that it's in english Mm. because i don't does she ever sing in french in no like not in general in her career but in this film in this film yeah 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 all the songs all the lyrics are completely in english yeah yeah so uh, i'm i'm shocked that it was because it was seen as too challenging my feeling as to why they wouldn't have used the French music is because you've got to remember that this is like it's a year before an inconvenient truth it's right when Hollywood was really getting into the whole like we need to save the planet global warming cause and to to me the idea like because Morgan Freeman with his really epic kind of voice and the sort of the message of the film of being around the you know the extraordinary life at the polar reaches and and it needed a more serious approach essentially because it's a grandiose issue and the french version makes it much 
more personal and funny and it, personality and character driven rather than this epic tale of the frozen regions of, of the world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So to me, I, I felt that that would be the reason why they went away from this kind of dorky, funky, fun, happy sort of a track because there's like, no, this is really serious. These places are dying. No, they just felt threatened by the fact that it was this sort of unusual music that like North Americans, they need something that they can... They're used to. They need the traditional music. The traditional. They would associate with the documentary. Yeah, yeah. that's that's the far more tragic version of that story. Mm. I think in some ways it's unusual, and it's a little bit kind of takes you out of it in some ways. It but does. To, um, Which is weird, right at the beginning of a film that it's already beginning to take you out of it. But it, you know, you're you're right. But in some ways it works in its quirky way. It does. You know, because it makes you pay attention a little bit more. I really like it. I for precisely, I think it it tells you this is not a normal documentary. This is something a bit different, and it immediately tells you that this is a film with personality mm, mm. and we'll probably continue that as we talk about the the track that immediately follows it which is a little bit more traditional called the voyage That's it's beautiful. It's funny. It's, it's funky. still quite epic in its, it's own still, way. It's got that big sweeping kind of thing. It it doesn't feel like it would be out of place in one of the more fun parts of a like an animation or, or even Earth. animation or as animation. well. Animation, yeah, absolutely. I I really like that. It's yeah, it's it's fun and it's quirky. And you, when the penguins are kind of like waddling around and sliding over it, it's got it gets that sort of funky sort of a beat to it, and it gives it a it lifts it. Yeah, you know. and it gives it an animated comedy kind of a, yeah. a a vibe as well, whilst also being quite serious and sweeping at the same time. And I think we've got to at this point. We're not going to talk about the American version all the way through this episode. I hope, but we ha- we have to sort of show the American version for this one, which is. And I think the, the title of it tells you everything, whereas this is called The Voyage. Theirs is called The Most Hostile Place on Earth. It's much darker, slower, more Zimmer-esque. When you watch those same scenes of the penguins waddling 
and sliding and stuff rather than sort of allowing you to enjoy the sort of the funny slightly comedic way of the way they move it gives it this sort of slow-mo majestic sort of and it completely changes the sense of of it all it's very much of oh this is a sort of a, a great sort of foreign land that we need to protect it's it's all all sort of really magical and special rather than these are funny little characters that we're going to get to enjoy watching for the next hour and a half and it's amazing how much of a difference seemingly minor changes in music can make to a scene i think for me it sounds quite new agey it does it's got an almost like Enya track kind of a sound to it. Mm, mm, which... And yet they both they both kind of meet in the middle with that sort of slightly Zimmer and quite a lot of James Newton Howard, mm-hmm. that sound. Cause, uh, so this is, what, 2005? 2003 was Finding Nemo, mm-hmm. which had that that sound, of the, the underwater sound, the long reverbs, the long decays, everything, and that really kind of... Uh, I don't like this as a word, but it's sort of a really jankly sound that mm-hmm. James Newton Howard uses because he uses a lot of like gamelan and ethnic percussion, as it were, in his tracks. I found that some of the ethnic instrumentation just didn't actually fit. Like some of the yeah. flutes, it just felt a little bit out of place for mm-hmm. the scene and for like the environment for me. I just felt like, oh, well, you know, if you place the same music, you can easily place it if it's a documentary about, you know, set in the desert or like mm. talking about the Egyptian sort of, yeah. sort of histories. And so it felt really similar. It, do you know what I mean? Like It, it felt it, a bit more generic. Exactly. And that it could be placed anywhere. Whereas I felt like obviously with... Emily Simone's it's very specific it's very yeah even though it it too is incredibly woodwind based um and so you're right there's something about it fits is there some sort of icy sounds in the Emily Simone one I mean we'll touch more in the production production and techniques the way it all kind of came about was she initially wrote a song called Ice Girl Mm -hmm. and that got the attention of the director. That music is played over the credits, yeah? So yes, like the credits exactly. Track, yeah. That was the first song that she wrote, and that was basically just for her own concept because an album that she did be called Vegetal, where she recorded the sounds of water and the sounds of plants and then processed them and created them into, like, drum rhythm beats mm-hmm. and, uh, like, a, a layer of textures focusing on an ice or wintry feel. Okay, so she was going to do an ice album, basically. Yeah, initially. And then, however, planets aligned, Mm. you know, Luke, the director, found out about her and he contacted her and said, well, would you know, would you like to score? Do this film about penguins. Yeah, exactly. And then obviously, because she already had a bit of a head start and she already had an idea of what she wanted to do in terms of recording sounds of snow, sounds of like icicles, you know, being played and Mm. Or melted oh, and stuff. Okay. So there's a lot of um, textures that she recorded that are are added specifically to the soundtrack, which I kind of I think really does elevate yeah. icy, wintry, polar setting and feeling. And I, again, it's it's going against your sort of traditional orchestration or experimentations. Just really thinking out, yeah. and thinking outside the box. Definitely. You know. So kudos to her. So which one do we think is the best? Well, it, it's really hard. With this it one. is really hard because both are very different, obviously. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> wildly different. I like them both for different reasons. But if we're talking about just having the opening introduction to characters, in the weird way, I'm kind of leaning towards Under the Skin. Yeah. Because there's an element of unsettling 
kind of doom that evoked in me that I wanted to know more. Okay. I think with um, Emily Simone's, as much as I really liked it, it's funny, I love listening to the soundtrack um, before watching the film. There was a part of me that felt a little bit... Do you think your familiarity with the music changed your experience of the film? Yeah, because I, w- I had my own vision of where it should be placed. So yes. having it seen to be placed right at the beginning of the film, I think if it was just instrumental, the b- opening didn't have her singing as much, mm. some of the lyrics. I think it, for me personally, I would have probably enjoyed it more. But because I felt there was that element of kind of being pushed a little ping pong, of being kind of detached from it a little bit and seeing the visuals. So... But when you get introduced with the voyage with the penguins, that felt really right. That felt really, yep. you know, that's just a perfect um, synergy of both visuals and the characters and what it's trying to tell you. I think I'm going to go through on this game because I wanted to know more. There was an element You of, asked a question that you wanted yeah, answered. Like the music kind of made me feel already unsettled. So I was like, okay, I felt like, okay, I'm in for a bit of a ride here now. Mm. So... Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I'm going to go for um, Under the Skin. skin. I 100% agree with all of the things you just said, except I'm going to go with Emile Simon. (laughs) Ah, interesting. I feel like in both cases, these are, or they seem to be clear genre films when you walk through the door of the cinema. You know, one is a clear psychological thriller, horror, sci-fi, blah. The other is a clear documentary. But both are then very clearly, right from the beginning, going to go about their films in a different way to how you necessarily expected them to do so. I don't know if maybe in French language documentary that that is a normal way of doing it, but certainly to me it was an unusual way of doing a documentary. So to me, one of the jobs of these first piece of music, and I think they both do it, is to basically help communicate, this is not what you expected. We're we're doing something different now. They both do it very well. (laughs) And... I very much, I love the Under the Skin. I love that Pendretsky Schnitka sound. It's it's crazy. It's new. It's novel. But that Emile Simone song, the All is White, it, it hits you. You're like, wow, this is, this is not what I expected. And then to follow it up with The Voyage, which nails it, nails the, the tone, the experience of the penguins, the funniness, but also the gravity and the seriousness. It's a very difficult line it has to tread, and I think it absolutely nails it, whereas under the skin, it's just an uncomfortable feeling. I feel like they could have actually grabbed a chunk of Penderecki, like done a a Kubrick, and grabbed a piece of Penderecki or or Schnitka or something, which also would have had a furious energy and been completely mysterious, and you would have had no idea where it was going, and it still would have worked. But sometimes less is more. No, I agree. But I feel like they, they, they would have done it similarly well because it doesn't then attach to a whole lot else. Whereas the Emile Simone, it, it just it touches so many points of what this film is going to be. That to me, it works slightly better. It, it, it triggers all the cues as, you, as the audience would expect, yeah. But for me, like the under the skin, it didn't. It just kind of like... It just kind of sat there and just bubbled. Yeah. You know. Oh, I love it. And I, I totally agree. And it's close. And before our relationship deteriorates any further, let's move on to round two. <laughs> Which is called Danger. Danger. <laughs> I think, again, we'll start with Under the Skin. And this is, I think, to me, this is the dominant theme of, of the movie Under the Skin. It's what 
I think Mika has referred to, and I would certainly agree with that, it's sort of the capture theme. So we're going to play a track called Death, which is probably the clearest version of the theme, although you hear it across probably about a third of the tracks on the album, and particularly one called Lips to Void. But we'll, we'll play now a track called Death. I like it. It's really, really good. It's very off-putting, like pretty much I think all of the music in this in the mm. soundtrack. It's very off-putting. It's really complicated what this piece of music does. It's kind of sexy and sensual, but also really dangerous and threatening. It reminds me a lot of, and I don't mean this in a negative way at all, but it reminds me a lot of sort of the best Bernard Herrmann music mm -hmm. in mm -hmm. the way that it, a lot of his music also trends that line of, sexy dangerous mm -hmm. and obviously it also it plays quite heavily with the the string sound which we, we associate with with Herman but I think because we, we've gone down this road before obviously we've talked about Herman himself in Psycho and then we talked about in the Batman episode how Danny Elfman kind of ripped off Herman a lot in a way that I think was very sort of ham-fisted he basically just pretty much copied Herman and you know, we, we kind of marked him down for that, I believe, in that episode. In this case, I would say that this is very Herman-esque, but I'm not marking her down in any way. She has sort of... Reimagined it. Exactly. She's taken the kernel of what Herman was doing, the style that he was writing for, because her character has an almost Hitchcocky type quality to it, I would say. Yeah, I mean, I was going to say that what I find really interesting is the reason why she may have picked that sort of sound is that it did remind me, as you say, a lot of the Hitchcock films, a mm. lot of the sort of 50s, 60s sort of like fame fatale type mm. archetypes. And I kind of felt like the reason why that was her theme or her sort of mating call or her mm. seduction call Minka is... Minka describes it as her perfume that yeah, she puts on. Yeah, that's an interesting... Um, I like that. When an alien or something that doesn't belong to this world comes in and tries to copy or emulate us, they'll always go to buy something that... Go look at the past to see oh, what yeah. people... Um, reacted to what yep. worked for them so I almost felt like the reason why that if she kind of chose to, for it to mm. be her seduction call uh, back in the days that sort of sound was deemed as to be quite sexy mm. and sexual and yeah. stuff so that would resonate more with today's sort of her praise that's like how it. do you know what I mean I so, like I like that thinking yeah absolutely I yeah I really like that and just on a more sort of practical level I I really love how she's taken that sort of harmony type sound but made it very contemporary like it sounds current mm. i think this is the closest experience you'll ever get to having 
been going to movies in the 60s and listening to a new home and score and being like wow this kind of when we were talking the that first episode about how this was shocking difficult music at the time that was really challenging the audience this is that now I think. well it's interesting because originally there apparently the director said that there wasn't meant to be any music until the scene in the kitchen you know when she starts in tapping. the movie entirely in, yeah Wow. His sort of concept was that the whole ex- film experience is meant to be from the alien's point of view mm-hmm. and therefore her own perspective. Therefore, we should deny the audience and like the mm. alien any music until she hears it in her own environment. In real life, we don't have an underscore when yes. we're driving a, like a Ford Transit. Oh, I do. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> or we don't have an when underscore. When I'm driving my Ford Transit trying to... <laughs> <laughs> well, we don't have an underscore for when we're seducing men and like leading them into a black pool of harvest you know (laughs) so um yeah that was the initial concept of say no music until she hears it and is it digestively diegetic yeah yeah so i'm really glad he changed his mind absolutely because i think without it it just would have been like it would have not worked and i think because the music is such it's a character in itself he kind of told me don't make it as overly as an underscore so that people don't notice it like do bring it out into the forefront um, because not a lot happens in the film no not a lot happens there's not a very strong sense of it's very repetitive yeah and there's not a strong sense of story of what's going on or where it's going you sort of nut it out but really, you could probably describe the story in about three sentences. Yeah, exactly. It gives a lot of form and structure and character nuance to the mm, film, the mm. music. I think without it, a lot more of those people would have walked out of the cinema. Oh, yeah, watching. I completely agree. Yeah. They just don't have enough patience, though. No. <laughs> anyway, so moving on to um, Emily Simone's, there are two scenes where there's danger. Yeah. You know, danger scenes, I guess, in terms of obviously with the sea leopard and with the killer birds. So Yeah, so let, let's start with uh, the, the first track that we hear in the film, which comes about halfway through, called the sea leopard. And we hear this when, so the mother penguins have all gone off to hunt and they've all sort of dived underwater and they're beginning to catch fish. And then a sea leopard who is sort of lurking there waiting for them starts to attack them.
It kind of made me feel a bit like it's like, oh, this is the the, the Celia, but it's coming, it's coming, he's gonna get you, it's gonna get you. Yeah, you immediately get that sense of danger, don't <laughs> yeah, you? Yeah, and that sort of tension, particularly with the shots of the sea leopard's mouth mm-hmm. and like when its jaws like come out and stuff. I was like, whoa, I wasn't expecting that for it to be this close. Mm-hmm. Aligned with the music, it really kind of emulate a silver sense of danger for me. For yeah, sure. it's it's got a touch of Jaws about it. Obviously, that low kind of cello ostinato Jaws kind of sound, but then it does the the beats on top. Yeah, it's weird. Like the the cello kind of that sort of rhythm, that sort of the dunt dunt. Mm. When I was listening to it, it just made me imagine some sort of like a giant coming for you, taking its oh, space. Oh, like foot, sort of footsteps. Yeah. Do you so know? rather, yeah, okay. So rather than Jaws, which we just described as having that sort of flowing, undulating swagger of a shark. Da-dun, this da-dun. Was, exactly. This was more like a doom, doom, yeah. doom of something walking. Yeah, almost similar to like felt. Sicario when we were listening oh, to it, you know. Beast. But it's still quite. It's not overly orchestral and very bombastic no. in terms of like the scale of instrumentation. You know, no, it's, it's quite very low. small and sparse. Yeah, and I still and I liked with how sparse it is and how much feeling she was able to mm. conjure up. You know, just using those like little elements of the cello stomps and, and like stabs of music basically yeah. the whole time. So moving on to Attack of the Killer Birds, where a handful of big birds, which I understand are giant petrels, sort of swoop down to steal some of the baby penguins away. sort of haunted house kind of a sound through the middle with this with the, the it woman has, singing and it's basically feels like that track has got like three different stages mm. where it kind of evolves from one scene to another and stuff because there was an element of like cowboys or and it goes western at the yeah end. yeah so that was a bit of a okay where are we going? What are we doing with that then? You know, because initially it start off quite, as you say, very haunting and quite metallic. It kind of reminded mm. me a little bit of Terminator. Oh, yeah. Okay. I don't know yeah. why. There was something about the use of the sort of the gongs that she used. Yeah. It kind of had 
emulated so the pursuit of the terminator mm. or the pursuit of the bird predator coming towards um the prey and or like watching constantly mm-hmm. i always felt like maybe it suited better during the sea leopard scene maybe yeah i like for the scene with the birds i felt there was a it I like the track on its own, yes. but I don't necessarily felt it worked so much with the scenes. Yeah, I've got a feeling it's there like that because it's a bit of a weird scene in the actual footage yeah. that they have because the birds are really ungainly and quite awkward with, with yeah, how it's they quite, catch. Yeah, it's quite um, like comical in some ways. Yeah, yeah, because they they yeah, they'd like completely miss them or they go skidding off into the like the snow kind of thing and the the penguins are sort of like just falling over. When it's trying to get the little chicks and they're all like huddled together, like mm. running away, it, there was an element of it's just quite humorous. Yeah, so I think that's why they've sort of tried to be a bit over the top and dark to try and like counteract the fact that it. But it didn't like, work. It's serious, but it's also funny. But it, we don't think it's funny. But it's, it didn't work for me. Yeah. As I said, I think that particular track would have worked better with the sea leopard because there was an element of danger and there was a pursuit and there was a kill and it just felt. Mm. inevitable kill as yeah. well whereas with the bird I just felt like well for one thing I, I never realised that those birds actually kill eat, eat little, penguins yeah so that was something new that I learnt there yeah but on its own I love the track I think it's very cool and in, in its own right but just not for the scene yeah it's wild it, I feel like it belongs in another film where it would be potentially the best track of that film because it is it's a really really fun track so winners I'm going to go with Under the Skin. Under the Skin? Yeah. I always like to go for something where um, where I felt like I was introduced to a different sound and I felt like a different emotions were mm-hmm. being coming through and I felt a lot more with Under the Skin. I agree. I think the Under the Skin music, I mean, it, it's it's amazing. It's very special music and it is so important to to the film. I think that's the central piece of music of Under the Skin and it's it's a truly remarkable track. So I think it is that quite quite clearly. The Emily Simone tracks are very good in their own right, but they don't carry a film, which the other one does. So I'm going to go with Under the Skin and be very happy about that decision. <laughs> Moving on to round three. Intimacy and raw emotion. So now, Tristan, tell me about this. You <laughs> picked this title. You wanted to discuss it. So explain this to us. <sighs> yeah. <laughs> I did say at the beginning that we had to be creative in order to fit these ones together. And I'm not going to lie. This is very much a sort of creative conceit in order to talk about my favorite tracks from these films. And I said at the beginning that there's basically three really significant themes and tracks from under the skin the first one was the creation the second one which kind of dominates the film was the death we just talked about and the third one is a track on which on the album is called love but which i don't do you you think that the alien ever feels any sense of love in this film no i think what it is is like she doesn't she has probably a preconception of what love should be which is yeah, why like she, she sort felt, of learned. Yeah, which is why she felt like, oh, in order for me to feel love, I need to have sex with this person. Because real love doesn't necessarily have to, it's not necessarily all about the mm. act of, mm-hmm. you know, mating. So, so I think that's where 
in her mind what she's been trained you know to do her mission that's all about doing the act that's what love is all about she just needs needed to have a better teacher to explain these things to her but because she was alone and because the people that she was uh, encountering weren't able to give her more in-depth no. sort of knowledge or explanation about the ways of the human life you know mm. I think a good example of where she kind of learnt human contact or was when she fell over and then that she was picked up by people. She was oh, helped up, yes, you know. Yes. That was a genuine sort of, I guess, a stint of love mm-hmm. and compassion, mm. I guess. Does that answer your question? Sort of. <laughs> um, I, was, I was more just saying, I mean, do we really think that Shiva feels love or... Is it sort of almost like a misnamed track, in a sense? In that, is that is that an emotion that we really think that she feels? I I'm inclined to say no. I equate this track more with her sense of self growing, a sort of sense of awareness that she sort of exists and is an emotional being, rather than necessarily specifically feelings of affection, attraction towards a human being, as as it were. Well, you can kind of see it like the fact that she's wearing a human skin could be the fact that the human essence is now evoking and merging with her um, alien self, mm. which is why, as you're talking about the awakening, it's it's all getting blended in. So therefore, it's taking over mm-hmm. her. I'd sort of compare it to, say, what we talked about last month with Eleven, who's in some, some sense a similar sort of a character. But so 11, we get those sort of love themes coming through, which is, again, it's her kind of waking up and sort of going through adolescence and discovering that there are other human beings and peers of, of her age in the world. But she has a genuine affection for is it Mike. Mike, yeah. So there it really is a love theme, even if it's a very sort of prepubescent, ill-formed love theme. There is genuine affection and love there as she's growing. I think these... This track, which we, we will play you soon, I promise, it similarly represents emotional growth as much as it does affection, but I think there's a lot less affection in this. But it could be affection towards herself. Oh, yeah. Because, you know, there's a scene when she is admiringly looking at, at her, her body. body. Yeah. And, you know... And this music may well be playing of that as well, actually. Yeah, so it could be maybe it's that sort of connection to herself mm. more. And realising what maybe this is all about, you Mm -hmm. know. Let's move on to the track. The track called Love. So there's a lot of 
a lot of glissandos, lots of sort of, it's really uncanny to me. It's sort of, it feels very, I don't, I don't know if this was, it started out as strings and was then processed or if it started out as samples. My suspicion is that it started out as samples. Well, why? What's, what's your issue with it? <sighs> it sounds really unnatural and wrong. Which I agree is like is is a good thing for this moment in the track, but in the I, movie. But bear in mind, I think the whole soundtrack is meant to be from an alien's perspective. Mm. I think it's meant to be very otherworldly. I yeah. think it's meant to be disjointed. It's meant to be like what an alien might perceive a human a human world. musical world sounding. Yeah, so I think it works. Yeah. As in, like, yes, this is meant to be our settling. Like, try and give somebody to perform a piece of music using, I don't know, like a string piece, but play on the keyboard. You know, it's going to feel disjointed. It's not going to feel right. Exactly what it reminds me of. I remember when I when I was first sort of studying modernist music, as it were, and sort of I, I wrote a sort of Penderecki-type piece with the tone clusters and all of those sorts of things, and I couldn't sub- subject an actual string section to it. I don't know if we had enough violins, as it were, to play it. So I remember me, my music teacher, and a couple of other people, we sort of went into one of the music rooms where we had a whole bunch of synths, and we basically sat there and we tried to sort of create it using what was, at that point, quite primitive string samples and pitch wheels. And it was it was awful. Uh, this sounds a lot better than that, but it's, it's that same kind of vibe of, yeah, things just sort of like slide, but they don't really change in timbre and sound. And I agree with you that it works, but oh my goodness, does it grate me the wrong way? And that may just be me. <laughs> For me, it just, it didn't particularly evoke any sense of emotion, like of what it's okay. meant to be. It just kind of like, it was pretty, it was nice. I mean, for you, you say that it's a little bit more synthetic and a little bit more electronic. For me, it just felt like, well, she just had to find something that kind of maybe combines, connects, you know, her mm. emotional state, that it just had to sound a little bit, to me, a little bit generic in an electronic yeah. sense, you know, with, like, the chord progressions, yes. etc. It reminds me actually quite a bit of the Stranger Things soundtrack from last week and some of those ones where we did feel this is probably just a track that they had that they felt fit the timing and general mood of that scene but it doesn't yeah. feel like it was necessarily written specifically for the film yeah yeah fair enough yeah. so let's move on to the penguins with a track called the frozen world music goes over a penguin sex scene yeah and you know what in some ways it kind of made me feel like i'm watching a music video like a penguin music video yeah and but i liked it 
Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, because I actually watched the American version and I found the American version was just really dull and very like mm-hmm. it didn't heighten any elements of the emotion that yes. the penguins or even try to even pretend to emulate um, any emotions that the penguins are having. You mm-hmm. know, it just kind of felt really deadpan. With this song, you did like even when like when their heads came together. Yeah, almost it's so in sweet. The, it was sweet and you just felt like there was a communication between them, even though she's singing in English, but... I wonder how that was for a French audience. That's a completely aside, but anyway. I think they're probably used to it, to be honest, yeah. (laughs) And I kind of liked that. There was just something that... There was a real connection to it. There was a real sweetness. There was a real warmth to it. Mm. There's something about this track, and indeed the next one, which I did notice a lot with these, which is her tracks are very top-heavy in terms of pitch as well is very little bass you may get the occasional little like bass pulse but there's almost no bass there's very little real kind of mid-range either her voice is really high it's surrounded by very tinkly high pitch very stylish style yeah and it because it's so toppy i think that's a lot of what gives it that icy feel and it feels like it's dripping from on high rather than having any it's like little body. icicles dripping down yeah. yeah feels very icy it feels almost christmasy at times with all the bells i think in particular creates that sense mm. very magical uh and then we'll, we'll roll on to a, a rather similar track so this actually comes just before the sea leopard attack uh, spoiler alert And it's called Song of the Sea, and it plays just as the sort of mother penguins dive underwater to hunt or fish, however you want to describe it. to me it's got those really like long reverbs or echoes as people might know them it's like a the, submarine or something submarine sonar kind of yeah. sound as well the pong yeah pong <laughs> all the way through which is it's cool but it's also got that sort of like lilting floating kind of a quality to it well yeah because in her lyrics she sings look how i am flying mm. in the sea yeah like, so literally yeah yeah so but in terms of like how does it compare to the under the skin love? Why did you pick Song of the Sea to emulate an emotional like intimacy though? Well, I feel like that is probably where this film most specifically puts a voice, or particularly the soundtrack puts a voice into the mouths of the penguins. I feel like she's very much like singing the penguin song at that mm-hmm. point as they're sort of going under. They haven't eaten for what months. They've 
created chicks so they're like starving and they're, they're diving under they're floating through they're trying to find fish there's not terribly many fish there they're swimming around it, yeah to me it felt very very raw and emotional to me this scene maybe <laughs> didn't no, carry no. the same for others no no i'm just curious that's yeah. all what do we think i mean obviously these are two incredibly different films and incredibly different approaches what what, was, what do we think in terms of how they sort of address the emotions of their characters who are shall we say not particularly forthcoming with emotions themselves so I think the the music winds up having to to bridge the gap and for me I I think Emil Simone does it really really well I agree I think so too I think particularly in that scene with obviously the penguins when they're mating mm. um it just added a real sort of quality to it that I haven't seen in a while, you know, mm. because normally you obviously have um, instrumental music dubbed of the scenes for documentaries. But when you have a nice song with lyrics, you know, whereby it's almost it's speaking their minds, mm. you know, providing their thought processes. It, it, I thought it was a nice touch. I felt there was an element of innocence that um, yeah, like there was that. a lot of emotion coming through. It, it made it feel really intimate. Yeah. And sweet, I guess. Yes. Whereas with the um, the under the skin one, like it just, I think it just kind of wa- washed over my head pretty quickly. I agree. I agree. I don't think there's really much more to say. So let's move on to round four: production and techniques. So let's talk about some of the production technique used in Under the Skin. Yeah, because apparently she used viola a lot, because uh, apparently oh, yeah. it has it has a lot of harmonics due to it containing a lot of air. And therefore it's she, a bigger body. Yeah, yeah, and she used distortions of like speed distortions. So when she recorded it, she then slowed down the sample, the mm-hmm. audio, sort of typical technique to yes. use, um, speed manipulation. And uh, she did the same for Which the drums. Presumably, so a lot of the things that sound like cellos are probably actually violas that have been slowed down. Exactly, and she did the same for the drums. You know that sort of like dong. Mm. for death scene yeah. or seduction um which i actually thought were just foot footsteps but just drums like but which makes sense down. now because there's clearly nothing for her to be walking on no no but apparently she did that in order to try and emulate striptease okay apparently okay so that was quite interesting so and, just like sort of to emulate the sort of standard track of a of a sort of a slow striptease i guess an element of striptease of like when you're being put in the middle of the room and you're being told to take off your clothes okay and you've got this sort of beat oh okay yep okay so just the pulse and pace of it yeah rather than like if it was a very fast beat and obviously there was an element of like trying to kind of take it off very quickly whereas (laughs) you know i think (laughs) slow and sultry kind of exactly yeah yeah so it's more about you talking more about the tempo of the track rather than yeah. necessarily the sound of the drum being slowed down. So that it's no, it's both slow. because like the tempo came through her recording the drums and then slowing it down. Yeah, like she didn't pick the sort of the BPM to be that particular yep. rhythm. Um, it just came out of her um, recording the drum and then just slowing it down. I guess with Emily Simone, she obviously recorded a lot of the sort of icicle mm. um, environments. Which really works. For this yeah. Track. It's probably integrated better than most. I, I mean, we talked about how uh, last month, how Dave Porter integrated a lot of the sounds 
there. And I felt like a lot of the time, and I don't think we spoke about it, it sort of was more of a, it's a cool thing to do rather than necessarily you no, you notice that he's used those sounds. In this case, I think you really do. It really did sound like cracking ice and cracking eggshells. And... Well, yeah, she recorded sounds which relate to coldness, such as the sound of smashing ice or footsteps in the snow. And mm. this particular track called Egg really makes good use of those once you record those sounds and put them in, into a sort of a rhythm. And let's so. definitely listen to that. And also, I feel like the first sort of minute or so, I almost would... If you told me that that was a track from Under the Skin, I would almost believe you. If you didn't immediately associate it with sort of penguins and, and the egg, and I think this is from the scene where they're like rolling an egg between them, stuff trying to transfer it from, from the, the mother to the father, it sounds almost industrial, like it, like it belongs over a, a track of like a factory process doing things. It's got such a constant pulse kind of rhythm to it, which means you wouldn't think it would work for a complicated egg transfer scene between two penguins in what minus 40 degrees well for me when, well for me when i have first heard the track it really i felt like oh this is a great sort of contemporary dance piece mm. you know that's mm-hmm. you know a contemporary dancers yeah. could dance it because it's just it's so rhythmic and so there's so many textures that you can kind of like you you can highlight with your movements yes, and stuff and totally keep to that sort of me- momentum going yeah it's quite it sounds quite all over the place but there's still a center central a theme strong central Cent- pulse and, yeah. and, feel, and it's got really beautiful moments in it as well yeah so like the egg has moments of radiohead's polk um slash pole revolving doors to it like oh, yes. before it sinks and melts away under the harp and then let's the takes, right. <laughs> takes it away well here's a little clip of it all right
See, now you're making me feel bad for describing the egg as sounding industrial because that sounds industrial. The egg sounds like just rhythmic, organic sounds. Yeah, so we just wanted to touch on briefly mm. about it. It's interesting how they utilize the environment. Yeah, definitely. So what do you think? Oh, well, for me, I, I prefer Emily Simone's, the fact that she had a like a, a library of cold sounds. Yeah, that, that is cool. And I think... Sorry. Ice cold, yeah. So, yeah, I think that's quite... It's, again, it's, it's quite inspiring and quite encouraging for other potential composers to think outside the box and to use those techniques. Mm. You know, just go out there, take your microphone and record you know, plants or go to like an industrial warehouse and record sounds of like concrete mm -hmm. metals and see what you can come up with it. Mm. You know, see if you can make a new synergy of sounds. With Mika's, she just kind of utilized quite bog standard, really, sort of processing, I guess. But I think also her style was to try and keep it as organic as possible. Yes, although I think that she really deliberately let it, lets it go with that love theme. But yes, but still, but, but I mean, it's still clearly meant to sound like strings. So yeah. I, I get what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Just to me, it grates. But that's probably because I'm a string player. I think the because the much <laughs> no, I, I'm not going to say it. Nobody needs to hear my French pronunciations. My sort of take in the Emil, Emily Simone tracks is that they shouldn't work. They really shouldn't. They're crazy. They're out there. They're not the sort of music you hear in documentaries. But it's things like that that really ground them and make them work as music for a documentary about penguins in Antarctica. So, yeah, I'm completely with you that it's... I'm going to give that round to March of the Penguins, Emily Simon. Which brings us, finally, long last, dear listeners, to our final round of Legacy. Yeah, so we're kind of going to be talking a little bit more, not just about their own legacy, but because obviously they're quite new, they're still quite young, and it's they haven't. It's hard to evaluate a legacy of a film in the last sort of decade or so. Yeah, but I guess we got we got what well, I particularly want to touch upon about the fact that how you know the state of female composers in the film industry. Yes. And just how I just want to have a quick dis discussion about it and how, you know, I can start with representation of female composers in the film industry is usually that only 3% of the top 250 films of 2017 included only where female composers, only 3%, 3 of 250 films. I think the thing that is most shocking about that number is that it doesn't surprise me at all. It, that well, feels like the right number. Normally when you get these sort of numbers of, oh, you know, women are X percentage, you're like, oh, but I thought there were a few, but actually they're only, you know, 20% or something. But no, in this one, I'm like, well, yeah, because you don't hear of any female composers, and that is ridiculous. It is ridiculous because even in The Guardian, like in June, they wrote an article, like it was some of the statistics whereby they've shown that inexcusable fact that 76 classical concerts among 1,445 performed across the world from this year, only at least one piece is by a female composer. Sorry, what was the, what was the, how did that stat work again? Sorry. So basically um, that... 76 classical concerts among of 1,445 oh, okay. and performed across the world, only one piece was by a woman. Right, so in, in only 76 of the almost 1,500. 
So it's basically yeah. amounts to like ninety ninety five percent of concerts having music only composed by men. Yeah. So it basically means that. Well, tell me, Tristan, when you were learning about classical music, did you actually learn about any female composers, or was it all mainly like Mozart, Beethoven, those spot? Look, obviously, it is mainly, mainly the dead Germans, as I call them, mm. seem seem to dominate. There's a, there's a couple. Clara Schumann is probably the main one that comes up. Um, Hildegard of Bingen, one of the earliest composers, actually. Mm. There's a there's a couple snattering around, but yeah, the the dominant ones, the main ones you hear about, you know, the the big five from Russia, the various dead Germans, the Viennese school, the second Viennese school, they're they're all men. And like even when I was learning, you know, in secondary school music, I none of it was not even one female was kind of mm. introduced to our it was always males. Something that, you know, would be quite interesting. I wanted to link um, to this episode in the biography um, by Limelight Mag- Magazine where they talk about a couple of great female composers. One of them is a Russian composer um, who was actually one of the best in the Russian conservatory who was also Stravinsky's piano teacher. Wow. We'll add the link to that where, the, um, where they are discussed about what made them in terms of the legacy for the two composers that we're discussing, I mean, they both, again, are initial pop artists who have moved on to being composers, which, as we spoke in our previous yeah. episodes, that's quite a familiar journey. And it tends to result in soundtracks like these with a very strong sound, because that's obviously what you're going for when you when you hire an artist who's established as having their own sound and things. That's what you're buying. You're not buying someone to sort of manipulate to your film. You're buying someone to bring their sound to your film. And it, it works when it works. And I think in this case it does. Although Mika Levy's interesting in that sense. And I think she is a more of a traditional composer in terms of her mindset when it, when it came to writing this film, I think, rather than so much like an artist who just brought her relatively narrow sound, I think. She, well, no, she she's classically her, trained. Exactly. She brought her classical training but, and applied it in a few different But so ways. is Emily Simone. She actually went to a conservatory since hmm. she was seven and she studied musicology and specialised in medieval music as well as wow. electronic contemporary music. I think what's interesting about Emily Simone is that she comes from that sort of... I don't want to say typical. The French tend to like to experiment with sound. There's a lot of studies and sort of electroacoustic sort of mm-hmm. techniques. So they are quite pioneering and trying to experiment with different technologies that manipulate sound. And they are, and they've got a huge history of that from sort of like Debussy and Satie sort of playing with yeah. just the reverbs of pianos through to the eventually Andes Martinot. It sounds weird to say that it's specifically a French thing, but it, the French definitely are very into that. It's like their trademark, and that's something yeah. that um, Emily Simone, you know, kind of taps into a lot, particularly um, whenever she performs music from La Marche d'Empe live as well, because she uses this sort of like arm um, remote controller that oh, triggers okay. her vocals or triggers. Like to sort of set off loops and whatever. So. Loop, yeah, and changed pitches as well, or like add reverb and echoes mm-hmm. and stuff. And I'll advise you to have a look at some of her performances. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's really cool. Maybe post some links up on the on the socials. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So I kind of admire that of mm. Emily Simone. Mika, I know that she's gone on to do Jackie, the yeah. soundtrack for that. And that's, that's a huge sort of score for her yeah so i think obviously mika she is going into the right path of being more 
She looks like she could just become straight up a film composer. Yeah, so she's Even becoming... next Howard Shaw or People are becoming like more aware of her, for sure. Mm. Although it's a sad thing that maybe the Jackie soundtrack should have been more recognised more mm. in the Oscars, but it didn't, um, considering yeah. that the actress, Natalie Portman, was recognised. Yes, but, absolutely. But again, that's a shift that needs to be done, I think, more so by sort of the male community. There's only so much that, you know, female composers can do, but... Um, it is slowly changing because apparently uh, Marvel have just, first time in superhero history, have hired a female composer to score Captain Marvel. Okay. Who? Pinar Toprak. Pinar Toprak. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, she's so a, she's, game she's the... a fellow student of the person that taught me oh. composing. Oh, at, there at you Berkeley. go. So there you go. She's very good. She's amazing. We studied some of, because she had the, the link to my, my music teacher. We had a number of her scores from some of her really early stuff that she'd been working on. So, I've yeah, I've seen a lot of her stuff. She's she's a great composer. Yeah, so it's slowly but surely, I guess, is going to change. It's insane that the percentage is so low. I mean, there are a lot of old film composers still going around. I mean, Zimmer and Williams, obviously, are no spring chickens. But there's also plenty of young composers coming through like there is a generational change in composers coming through and even they are still predominantly male so it is i think it's only going to change if again the industry allows for more female-centric um, directors to um, direct to write their own stories sure. so that then for them to be able to pick female composers but then at the same time i don't want it to become quite segregated in that mm. way but Maybe to begin with, that's how it needs to be. Oh, yeah. Uh, well, obviously Probably. with Penny Jenkins, you know, coming out and doing the Wonder Woman. I think, mm. like, in the second movie, she's going to be doing a... Um, she's going to pick a female composer. Right. But, again, it would make a hell of a difference if you get more um, support from the more established directors, mm. you know, picking and taking a chance on, like, female composers. Definitely. You know, so... We shall see. Yeah. But that's something that I kind of wanted to touch upon, which I'm sure we will talk more. I'm, I'm sure we will. To bring well, more awareness to Whenever we can find another soundtrack written by one, which tragically at 3% is, is, is going to be a challenge. But yeah. No, do, uh, absolutely. So, yeah, so, but in terms of like picking the winner and my legacy, for me, I would actually like to say both. I think, mm-hmm. but for different reasons. You've you're, done that uh, before. I know, but you're. I know what you're going to go for. You're probably going to you? go Cause for it. Do you? Because I don't actually think I know at the moment. <laughs> really? <laughs> oh, I have a feeling you're going to go for Mika Levi for some reason. I don't know why. Interesting. Go on. <laughs> um, but for me, I think I would just go for both just because one is probably on the way to becoming a really recognised film composer. Mm. Whereas with Emily Simone, she did do another film soundtrack to call... I think it was called Frankie something. Okay. Um, well, no, the, the album was called Frankie, but the songs were used um, in a film called okay. Le Delicatine or something like that. But she's a little bit more under the radar and she write, likes to remain a little bit under the radar. You know, mm. Whereas I think Mika Levi, she might be more open to being more mm. at the forefront and have more attention on her I guess yeah. that's why she's kind of being given the opportunity or she wants to do more like upscale mm-hmm. films do you know what I mean yeah no I totally agree so they have the strengths 
in different areas they've still got a lot to say they've still they're still yeah. quite young and you know i think they should be given a, a little maybe in 10 years time if we do another <laughs> review about them we can have a we can then have a discussion about which one has a yeah we can pick a, a winner for the legacy but right now i just want to keep them both and just say you know what they're both winners and give an opportunity for them to flourish yeah. Look, I, I agree with you on, on all of that sentiment and that they're both winners. I suspect if we come back in 10 years' time, and this is just entirely a gut feel, that Mika Levi will have had the more substantial career, if only because I think she probably wants the film career more mm. than Emil Simone, who I think largely just wants to make her music and if films come along... Exactly. That's it's great. a bonus. And it seems to have basically been what's happened so far, is that she's been doing music that fits films and it, it happens, but it's it doesn't seem to be a point of emphasis for her. Whereas I think Mika Levi... At, at that's least, her goal. That's yeah, her dream. Yeah, yeah, I think so, to, to do big films and, and to do great things. So I suspect it's probably going to happen for her. That's I think they're completely kind of equal on that front. I... And I'm not doing this to spite you, but I actually think I'm going to award this round to Emily Simon. And I think it is just because, much as I love the, the Mika Levi soundtrack, and much that I actually think that, because this is her first film, you know, we, we talked about with, what was his name, with Danny Elfman, about how in that Batman soundtrack he was actually quite primitive and he could sort of feel the rough edges as he was sort of growing into his compositional style. I actually honestly think that Mickey Levi is, despite this being her first film and despite it being sort of a kind of a bit of an odd film to write for, sounds a lot more advanced than he did in his first films. Like she's got a really strong sense of sound. It's really quite powerful and palpable. But there's still a touch of she's using modernist music when you would use modernist music. She's using Hermit, I think, executed extremely well there. We're a little bit unsure about the love theme. It's basically she's doing the film composer thing. We, she probably hasn't quite found her sound yet, but we can hear that when it is going to be there, it is going to be amazing and it's already very sophisticated. So I'm very on board with that. But it's kind of, she's just scoring films. Whereas the, just in terms of the legacy of the soundtrack overall for La Marche de l'Empereur, it's an un, at least to me and to a Western audience, I think it is an unusual approach to take in terms of the soundtrack for a documentary. And I think it really works, but I think it's an unusual and it's a novel approach. And I would like, even though its influence perhaps isn't terribly strong and that we don't see a lot of documentaries doing it, I'd like to see it done more because I think it's a really great sound, this sort of using of a essentially a, a pop concept album as the backing track of a of a documentary. I like it. So I am going to award the round to that. Cool. Which brings us to our winner in conclusion and actually fairly comprehensively a win to Emily Simone. Yay! Congratulations, yeah. Emily. Is that is that how you wanted that to go? These are two soundtracks I know are very close to your heart. Yeah, I mean, either would have been a winner for me, but I'm quite happy with Emily Simone because for her to be recognised for it. Because it's such an unusual, quirky album that I like to hope that the audience will give a chance to listen to and hopefully it'll in introduce them to something Definitely. This is a soundtrack that, I mean, particularly those of you who don't speak French, you are probably never going to come across any other way. So definitely go out and give it a listen. And coming up, hopefully at the end of the month, is going to be our first annual Halloween special. We're going to be talking about, from 1976, Jerry Goldsmith's classic score for The Omen, and a more modern score 
Mark Corvin's score for The Witch from 2015. Yeah, exciting. Yeah. So at home, maybe tell us some of your favourite soundtracks. Let us know through through our Facebook page or through our website, trastellamusic.com. And other than that... We look forward to seeing you and discussing our next episode. Bye-bye. You were looking for someone to keep you warm, you found me. You were looking for someone to dry your tears, you found me. You were looking for someone to not be alone, you found me.